Hey everybody, thank you for joining me on AM Live. Hope your weekend is going well. I appreciate you being here. So, the title of today's show is called Do Not Engage, and that comes from a line in the Washington Post in an article called As War Nears Fifth Month, Blinken Keeps Russian Diplomats at Arm's Length. It was published on Sunday, July 10th. And uh, the post says this, in the nearly five months since Russia invaded Ukraine, Secretary of State Antony Blinken has maintained the same posture toward Moscow. Do not engage. The top U.S. diplomat has not held a single meeting or phone call with a senior Russian official throughout the conflict. A cold shoulder strategy, he continued over the weekend at a gathering of foreign ministers of the world's 20 biggest economies in, in Indonesia, where his Russian counterpart, Sergei Lavrov, was sometimes in the same room with him. So the top diplomats from the world's top two nuclear powers, who are currently engaged in a catastrophic proxy war in Ukraine, a catastrophe not just for Ukraine, but really the rest of the world, as we are seeing now with global inflation and the massive hunger that's resulted from, from this war and power cuts and all these other deprivations. They're in the same room and they can't even bring themselves to talk. And the strategy there of do not engage, I think, captures the Biden administration's policy perfectly because engaging with Russia means diplomacy and diplomacy means possibly ending the war. And I don't think these people want to end the war um, for all the reasons we've talked about many times. They want to use this war. As Lloyd Austin, the defense secretary, laid out not too long ago, he said, well, we want to use this war to see Russia weakened. And that was just actually confirmed uh, as as being the guiding U.S. strategy by some Biden officials. If you remember when, when, when Austin said that, he was reprimanded by Biden. Biden called him and said, don't say that. And there was some talk that, you know, Austin had gone too far. But really, uh, this is what The New York Times says. Uh, in a recent article about Biden, the Times says this, quote, some officials, including Biden, cringed when Lloyd Austin said in April that, quote, we want to see Russia weaken to the, the, to the degree that it can't do the kinds of things it has done in invading Ukraine. The president called Mr. Austin to remonstrate him for the comment, then directed his staff to leak the fact he had done so. But officials acknowledged that was indeed the long term strategy even if Biden did not want to publicly provoke Putin into escalation. So that's Biden officials confirming that what Lloyd Austin said was exactly their guiding strategy. The only problem they had was that he said it publicly rather than keeping it private. So that's where we're at. We have an open admission by our leaders that they are using Ukraine to weaken Russia. They have no interest in engaging with Russia to end the war. And they're even willing to sacrifice not just Ukrainians, but vulnerable people around the world for that aim. And uh, that that's where we're at. That That is where we're at. And um, it's just amazing to me. And, uh, you know, I'm going to bring him up because I just find it so incredible that Matt Duss, who was the uh, foreign policy advisor to Bernie Sanders, and apparently has an influential role, not just on Bernie, but on other progressives in Washington, when I recently interviewed Ryan Grimm, I asked him, you know, because he has sources close to the squad, like, what's, what's up with every member of Congress, including the squad, voting to authorize the $40 billion proxy war bill? And he said, 
It's because of Matt Duss. Matt Duss has a lot of influence. And Matt Duss has been out there applauding the Biden administration's handling of the war, says they've conducted strenuous diplomacy, did all they could to avoid it. They've handled it great. They, they, theirs is the, uh, the responsible, progressive position on the Ukraine war, in his words. And so despite the open admission that there's been no diplomacy and only a commitment to using Ukraine for a proxy war, you have you can count on progressives like Matt Duss and thus Bernie and every other progressive in con- Congress to not raise any alarm. And recently, Ro Khanna said something out of turn. He said, we can't have this endless war. But then he kind of went out. That was it. He didn't say anything further. There's no plan on the table to try to hold Biden accountable. Nothing. Everyone's just going along with this and ignoring the disaster as it unfolds for Ukraine and for everybody else. So that's uh, that's what I have to say about that. I'm sure we can talk more about it if people are interested. I do want to say one thing related to January 6th. Now, normally I don't talk about January 6th because I just can't bring myself to care. My position is what Trump did was crazy. It was reckless. I think he deserved to be impeached for it. My other point, though, is that it happened. It was 18 months ago. And if there are further penalties to result from that, that will come from the Justice Department, which is currently conducting a sprawling investigation. And meanwhile, for some reason, Democrats in Congress have decided to make one of their top issues, these select committee hearings about January 6th, and pretending that they're uncovering something massive and explosive and something we didn't know before. So the latest iteration was this uh, Mark Meadows aide, Cassidy Hutchinson, who testified. And it was, you know, if you guys saw this last week, the coverage was breathless. It was kind of like Russiagate. Everyone was saying bombshell this and bombshell that. But much like Russiagate, when you dug into it, a lot of it was based on hearsay. And first there was a Secret Service thing where Trump apparently lunged for the wheel. But then you had other people who were actually there saying that they never saw such a thing. And then my point was, even if it's true, like who cares? Like if Trump had grabbed the wheel, is Trump some kind of superhero where he can command? Like if he all of a sudden takes over a vehicle, it becomes like a Batmobile and that's going to break through the Capitol and that's going to be a coup. The significance to me was overblown, whether it was true or not. And then you had this thing where it was said that Pat Cipollone, Pat Cipollone, the uh, White House counsel, had uh, warned that, again, this is according to Cassidy Hutchinson, that warned that if Trump's plan succeeded and he went to the Capitol, then Trump officials, quote, would be charged with every crime imaginable, right? So that's what Cassidy Hutchinson said. Media went crazy. This is a bombshell that Cipollone said this. But then it turns out this. So Cipollone, was, he recently testified on Friday. And um, apparently when he testified, this is according to the reporting we've, we've heard, he was not asked to confirm whether or not he said that. Because, again, the bombshell quote was that he had warned that if Trump's plan goes through, then we're going to be, quote, charged with every crime imaginable. So that was the bombshell. And Cipollone was there on Friday, so presumably – Great opportunity to ask him if he actually said that. Well, guess what? He was not asked whether or not he said that. And the reason why is, according to the New York Times, quote, the committee was made aware before the interview that Mr. Cipollone would not confirm that conversation were he to be asked. And thus, he was not asked about that specific statement on Friday. And that's because apparently he said he could not recall saying that um, 
So, in other words, he was denying it. Or at least he was saying he would not confirm that he said it. So basically, this to me is, you know, I, I don't care either way whether it's true or not. But what I do care about is the significance that is attached to these statements that dominate media coverage and that give the broader public the impression that all Democrats care about is January 6th. Much like with Russiagate, where all Democrats cared about was talking about these ultimately diffuse bombshells. And I just find it amazing that after Russiagate, that playbook still endures. It's like Democrats don't know what else to do. Despite all the issues confronting us, they can't help but focus on chatter from insiders and about Donald Trump, who's no longer even in power. At least during Russiagate, he was in office. He's not even the president anymore. So anyway, I just found that amusing. And rant-wise, that's all I have to say, unless I can think of something else, which I'll I'll return to any other rant issues if I can remember. But for now, let's take some calls. And Eric, you are first. Okay, I got a bit of a rant now. Now that you got uh, now that you got me thinking about it, the whole Matt Dust and, and progressive foreign policy thing. So here's my rant, which is um, I think part of I'm, I'm trying I'm trying to ask myself, okay, why does why do the progressives like? I put it in the comments. Why, why are they loyal to Matt Dust for some reason? Like, is there some reason why he, in particular, they have to, you know, his association with Bernie or something? Um, and maybe you have an answer to that one. But um, that why he why he would be so because um, what is he what has he actually done for you know these progressive people? And I wonder if it's just the fact that like so much of progressive thought, you know, critical thinking about foreign policy has been farmed out to fewer and fewer people, perhaps. Because people don't want to get accused or they don't want to get smeared as uh, an apologist or this or that, you know. Um, uh, uh, and, you know, now he, that's what he's doing to, as well. Um, so, sorry, you sound like you want to make a point. I did not. Uh, I, I was not trying to make a point. I was happy to to listen to your oh, point. Sure. Here. Well, my rant on this <laughs> was that the left, one of the really bad things, with, like with Syria, for example, and um, a certain other person by the name of Ken Klippenstein is when they talk about foreign policy and they'll say, well, that's boring. And it's like, uh, no, it's actually not boring. It's actually really interesting and kind of important and probably like should be the number one important thing. But, you know, the, it's this thing that like people on the left would say where they'll say, um, I've noticed it. People will say, oh, you're boring me. And it's like, no, 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 I'm not boring you. It's like, it's actually, I'm presenting you with an argument that you don't want to deal with, right? Or, or I, oh, it's just not a boring topic. It's just a boring topic to me. It's like, no, you're actually just trying to, uh, you're actually just trying to avoid a controversy by just calling it boring. So I don't know if you've noticed that. I don't know if you've noticed that as well, because. Um, oh, I have, for sure. I have, particularly definitely. Particularly on Syria and like things like that. It's like, oh, well, people, and people like Matt Dess or uh, put Ryan Grimm at that. They love to be like, like when Ryan Grimm, uh, uh, was that with you or with somebody on Twitter where he was just like, talking about the Duma leaks and was just like, wait, is that the thing that was like debunked or whatever? And then like, it's just apologism. And it's like, okay, he clearly is demonstrating that he doesn't know enough about the issue to like articulate it, but he does know enough about the issue to castigate other people's positions. And that's, that's a lot of endemic uh, in the discourse. (laughs) Yes. Well, there was a Twitter exchange I had with Ryan a while ago and Ryan, I should say, I like, I mean, people in my, you know, people who who know me from Jimmy Dore, you know, won't um, appreciate this perspective. But Ryan is a hardworking reporter. He, he's really, really productive. And I respect that. He does a lot of consistent work. And even though I don't agree with 
his opinions. And, you know, like when he clashes with Jimmy, especially, I, I find myself on Jimmy's side. But I respect his work ethic and I, I respect that he actually does the job of reporting, which is pretty rare these days. There are not too many, I think, serious journalists left. And I think he's one of them, even if I don't agree well, with his things. But, 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 I'm let me say. Okay. Well, okay. Okay. Well, be candid a second. I, mean, I don't really uh, want, to, want to debate, um, you know, Ryan Grimm uh, more than I, you know, like very much because it, because it's not really that important to me. But I will say I was very surprised. So we had this exchange on Duma, the OPCW leaks, where he he came at me like <laughs> out of nowhere, and he was trying to basically say that they'd already been yes, like uh, uh, debunked or or rebutted. And it was clear he hadn't read any of them, and I was very surprised by that. And I especially was surprised because his outlet, The Intercept, has never acknowledged the OPCW whistleblower's existence, even though they've published all these articles promoting the official state line on Duma that Siri was guilty of a chemical attack. But they've never acknowledged the existence of the OPCW whistleblowers and the trove of leaks that expose that allegation to be a complete lie, or at least expo- at minimum expose a massive cover-up of the OPCW investigation. So I was very surprised by that. And Ryan actually said he was going to look into it and do a, maybe even do some reporting on it. But I'm still waiting for that, which hasn't happened. But look, let me get to the broader issue you raise about the left and foreign policy and the influence of Matt Duss. It's an interesting question. Like, why does someone like that have an influence to the extent that he does? And I do think it is. There's a certain fatigue around foreign policy on the left. I don't really know why, because it's to me, it's such an important issue and such a foundational issue. Like, all the things that Americans are deprived of at home um, are totally linked to all the hordes that the U.S. does abroad. You know, the U.S. needs to keep people marginalized and impoverished and relying on you know, opportunities like the military to have a military force. You know, there was even a Wall Street Journal headline about this recently that like, um, you know, if we lower, co- it was something like if we lower college tuition or if we forgive student loans, something like that, uh, will we have enough people for the military? So there's a direct link. And it's also just foundational to the the ruling class's um, view of themselves in the world and their power that like, the U.S. is the global hegemon, and they can tolerate people like Bernie Sanders calling for, you know, health care and a higher minimum wage, but they can't tolerate anything that really questions that underlying hegemony because that's what their identity is about, and that's what keeps, you know, the, the whole power structure of the U.S. running. And so leftists have been increasingly deterred from speaking about it. There used to be a much stronger, I think, leftist you know, movement around foreign policy, the, you know, Vietnam, there's the anti-war movement. In the 80s, you had a big anti-nuclear uh, movement. You had solidarity with Central Americans who were being terrorized by U.S. drug wars. You had uh, uh, dirty wars. You had the Iraq war protests. But basically, after Obama, it's been the anti-war movement's been totally neutered. And I think people have also gotten the message that, I mean, if you just, if you stick to domestic issues like, you know, um, uh, marriage equality and, Healthcare. I mean, that's fine. You, like, you can exist, but if you do foreign policy, like for example, like Tulsi Gabbard tried to center on, uh, you're going to be chased out of town. You know, like Tulsi Gabbard introduced an act that would force the U.S. to stop arming Al Qaeda in Syria, and she was people. She was vilified for that. So that's just the message that has been laid down in Washington, and people like Matt Duss, who sort of play both sides. They speak in progressive language. They talk about U.S. militarism in critical ways. But then, on the other side of their mouth, go ahead and run and support some of the worst militaristic policies like the Ukraine proxy war. They've sort of 
filled like the that that void in progressive circles, pretending to be on the left, but really, you know, being in perfect lockstep with uh, Joe Biden. All right, thanks, Aaron. Uh, you wanted to push back, and I I don't want to deny your <laughs> your opportunity. I you know. know. Well, if you want to, I I just don't want to. I just don't want to get into it. With Ryan okay. Grimm, I mean, I can't forgive the Elizabeth Warren simping right up until Super Tuesday. I hold him personally responsible for that one. But, but well, what you say, though, about him is that, yeah, he does do, do a lot of work, but I think he is, you know, an access journalist, which is, of course, um, not, uh, that can be a neutral term, right? But his particular form of access journalism, he has yeah, access to the squad, and that has its uses, but also, obviously, it has its shortcomings of, in particular, when you consider his, you know, well, um, relationship with the Young Turks, I think, you know, the whole Young Turks, anybody, really anybody associated with the Young Turks is kind of just poison for the left. But anyways, um, um, but he's done some good stories. He's broken. I mean, with the right, um, I'll, I'll admit something a little off the record, but I kind of threw a little helping hand in terms of the Alex Morse story a little bit with him. Um, but I don't want to, I don't want to. Um, uh, overstate my role. But in any case, that was an important story. But um, although another, th- I do think he botched um, the Tara Reid story um, as well. And that's another important of his stories. And actually, I did read his book, um, we, We've we Got People, and you, won't, you wouldn't believe it, but it, it spends uh, about two pages on the whole Bernie primary campaign versus spending on a lot more time, you know, on Elizabeth Warren. And, you mm. know, it, it totally, he totally accepted at her at face value when she said, oh, yeah, I, I couldn't remember who I voted for. And, uh, you know, I was, you know, uh, you know, and, and oh, and I really did think I was a Native American. So I think in terms of people who have divided the left, that's why, you know, that's the real hate against Ryan Grimm. And um, and of course, I mean, you keep you, you keep saying this. I keep I can't tell you if you're joking anymore because you do keep saying, oh, he's going to do a story about it. Like, you know, he's not going to do that. Right. No, I, I didn't say no. I, I, I well, look, are I you can't. being ironic? No, 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 no. Look, he said he was going to do it. He said he was going to look into it. I'm certainly not holding my breath, but well, he's I'm also, also not going to rule out the possibility. Well, he's also said he would go on uh, debate Jackson Hinkle, and he hasn't done that yet. Oh, uh, I wanted to ask you about that. What do you – you saw that Jackson Hinkle got demonetized, right? Oh, yes. Well, this is – okay. Um, I'm still – like I find this just unbelievable, and it's it's it really speaks to the time we're in. So Jackson Hinkle, for those who don't know him, is a young guy, built a really big following – during the Ukraine proxy war, because he every night he's been doing these live streams where he challenges the pro proxy war narrative. And look, he you know he supports essentially. If I understand his position correctly, he actually supports Russia's invasion of Ukraine. He thinks it's totally justified, which I don't. I don't have that same position, but certainly I think what he's doing is important. And he's debunking a lot of propaganda. And regardless of what I think of what he's doing, the point is he has the right to do it if you believe in free speech. But YouTube, where he's built his following, doesn't agree. And they've just permanently demonetized his channel, telling him that his content is not in line with their standards or whatever. And it's because of Ukraine uh, and because he's presenting a different narrative than what we're given. And, and that's just – it's so – chilling it's to, it, it's it's a it's a complete form of censorship because this is how he was making a living and he's he built a big following he worked very hard he was getting a lot of views more views than like some of the other big uh lefty liberal youtube channels and now they're telling him he can't make he can't earn an income off of any anymore so they're basically punishing him 
for being a dissenter. And they're sending a message to anybody else saying, you know, like, watch it. Like, if you, if you, um, deviate from the party line like Jackson does, we're going to, we're going to take away your right to earn a living too. And that to me is a form of censorship because it's trying to intimidate people into not speaking their mind and saying what they want to say about a really important topic. One of the most important topics in the world. So it's, uh, it's an outrage. And I, I hope there's some kind of legal recourse or something. Cause I just don't think we can tolerate this, but unfortunately these companies like YouTube are so powerful that maybe there's just nothing, maybe there's nothing we can do. And that's just really depressing. Well, you know, I think if I just want to give people advice or it's just really just pay attention to people who, who basically say, um, I only debate, I, I, I don't, uh, debate people who I disagree with, you know, cause they'll, they'll say with people like, um, uh, oh, um, I actually I refuse to debate Russian apologists, and it's like, yeah, okay, well, just don't debate people you disagree with. Um, you know, I don't know. I, I think sometimes people get dramatic about that, but, anyways, um, thanks so much for you know, um, I, you really you really let me push you back, and um, I appreciate it. <laughs> so I so I appreciate much. the pushback. Yes. All right, Eric. It's, thank you. Have a good right, night. Bye bye. Okay. No war, Chris. And no work, Chris. I know you had it. I know you know how to. There you go. Okay. Hey, I didn't realize I'd called in. I didn't mean to. I'm just out on a walk in a oh. windy, busy park. So, um, All right. But thanks for taking my call. I'll just no say problem. one thing, though, in response to Eric. The one person that I think came out of, uh, out of uh, TYT or that had peripheral uh, uh, periphery to TYT was, was Michael Tracy. And... Uh, you know, the rest can stand as they are. But. Well, and 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 Jimmy Dore too, of course. Jimmy Dore was and a Jimmy Dore, for a bit. Of course, yes. You know, how could I forget? You <laughs> Absolutely, know? I love uh, Jimmy. There was so. once a time there. I'm 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 embarrassed to say it, but I gave I, I donated a Jenks congressional campaign uh, <laughs> because, and I'm that's you know that's on my conscience I, for the rest of my life. But you know, th- at the time, I thought, look, this guy's a this guy's a RussiaGate dupe, but at least he allows on dissenting opinions and you know he's his heart's in the right place he likes medicare for all anyway worst he did, uh, he, worst donation i've know, ever made we could you know we could do worse than jank but that's about 200 you know 214 or 15 of the democrats in the house but and yeah. and he would do things a little different but a lot of the shit that i've seen him from him lately is just supremely disappointing and uh yeah so that, means, is, uh, so that means that can, so that so that means Jen can possibly count on you to volunteer for his next campaign. All right, zero. I'll let him know. Chance, <laughs> let him know. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. I don't think he listens. All right, Daniel. And Daniel, if you're there, there's a microphone button in the bottom right to unmute yourself. There All you. right. Oh, sorry about that. No worries. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, you mentioned January 6th, and I just wanted to ask two questions. My first question is, were you aware that the QAnon shaman, the guy with the bison horns, uh, had a video on YouTube claiming he was a super soldier? I was not aware of that, no. Yeah, apparently... If since I'm into UFOs and stuff and you go down these crazy, I wouldn't say the word conspiracy theory. I would use the word conspiratory theory. It's basically the word conspiracy and retarded basically kind of combined. 
And there's like a whole group of people claiming to be super soldiers. I don't know why YouTube got rid of that uh, comedy gold, but <laughs> it is, um, it's just a sad thing because if you're the media, wouldn't you want to keep this up forever and ever so we can all make fun of him? Well, see, the problem there, though, is they, I mean, I, mean, I don't know what the reason for not, for not, uh, leaving this up, but there are people with an interest who basically want to preserve the narrative that the QAnon shaman and the other hooligans <laughs> were going to take over the country in a coup and replace our government. And so the more you actually see what these people are, the more ridiculous that sounds. So it's better just to like, you know, pretend as if the QAnon shaman was possibly going to be the next speaker of the house under a, the Trump coup administration. <laughs> um, anyway, um, but this goes back to um, a lot of your listeners talking about uh, TYT and uh, stuff like this. Well, have you ever read the book by John Potash, um, uh, Drugs as Weapons Against Us? No. Are you familiar? Well, he brings up a case um, that the CIA move drugs to basically neuter leftist movements during the 60s and 70s. And he puts that case down. He also puts that case towards popular music, musicians such as Tupac. Um, I can't think of his name, but uh, the head guy for Nirvana and stuff like that. Well, I noticed that there's this when you combine that uh Saint got 20 million dollars from some rich oligarch and how the Black Lives Matter movement got all this money and didn't know what to do with it I I'm just wondering now if the establishment quietly pays off people now instead of them getting them addicted to drugs it's just a crazy theory but it seems to make sense. If you if like, okay, you plop this. Hey, you stop talking. Um, you plop this to sink, and hey, you say Democrats are cool and whatnot. You'll always have this money. And maybe at one time they turned off the spigot, as it were, and they made sure that he suffered, that his company suffered. Just, a, just a theory. Yeah, sure. Well, look, we're all we're all welcome to have our theories, and certainly, I, I do not for a second. Um, think that the CIA is above doing really shady, nefarious things as they've done throughout their history. And there's so many things that we don't know about and we'll never know about. But I don't, you know, look, um, I, you know, I don't say things without evidence or, 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 or without some sort of plausible case for it. But yeah, look, I think there's totally, in general, I think it's always good to be suspicious of the motives of... Um, our government, and when you're seeing resources being poured into organizations that are used to attack the left, I mean, there's a long history of that, and so yeah, it, it's good to be mindful of that. I don't, I mean, your specific examples don't, they don't click for me, but who knows? I mean, right? Like, we'll, you know, in some cases, like we'll never know. But I certainly think, in general, it's good to be skeptical of the motives of the national security state, who have weaponized all sorts of things to try to undermine a real left, and that's, I mean. That's there, there's manuals about that. There's documents about that, where that's what they're openly doing from a long time ago. And so there's no reason to think that that's not continuing in some form. I just don't know how. Okay. Okay. Well, thanks for the call. Hey, you're welcome. Bye-bye. Okay. Olu. Hello. 
Hi there. Yeah, um, just want to know, do you think, yeah, if Trump was still in power, that the Ukraine war would have happened? Great question. I think about that a lot. I think about that a lot because I thought that a Biden administration would be ultimately less dangerous to the world than a Trump administration. Not that I didn't think that Biden would be dangerous, but, you know, given Trump and the people around him, I thought Biden would be less dangerous. And I've had to, of course, reevaluate that since Biden took office, which has just been a disaster. And would Trump have avoided the Ukraine proxy war? Well, look, I think there's evidence for and against that. Uh, The evidence against it is that when he came into office, he sent weapons to Ukraine that Obama never sent because Obama didn't want to further inflame the proxy war. And Trump came in and all of a sudden every neocon around him, along with Democrats, were urging him to send these weapons. And I don't think he has any real core principles. And he also was being called constantly a Russian puppet. So he was like, why not? And so he sent over weapons and helped escalate the proxy war in Ukraine. Uh, he didn't do anything at all to uh, to save the, the, the Minsk Accords. There was one point where he made some positive comments about Zelensky and Putin negotiating. This is in the fall of 2019, right, at, right as he was being impeached after he briefly paused those weapons. So, you know, but the thing is, the question with Trump is, whatever his own personal preference, would it have made a difference? And ultimately, in the face of neocon pressure around him of Mike Pompeo, um, assuming Mike Pompeo had stayed on, would Trump have stood up to Mike Pompeo and all the other neocons? I Honestly, if I had to bet, I, I would say no, but it's a counterfactual now. Mike Pompeo, by the way, just gave a crazy speech about Ukraine and, and China and Russia. And, you know, it, he, he fully endorses the current Biden policy in Ukraine. And he, sa- and he basically said that our support for Ukraine is conditional on them being willing to fight for us. You know, that was one of the takeaways I heard. And there could be no negotiations. Um, we're not going to send U.S. troops there. But aside from that, we're going to use Ukraine to fight Russia, exactly as the Biden administration is doing. So if Mike Pompeo had stayed on, would he have negotiated an end to this? Would he have uh, supported keeping Ukraine neutral and NATO? Would he have supported the Minsk Accords? I don't think so. So it really depends on who Trump on whether Trump would have appointed new people for a second term. Well, we'll never know. But I do think it's a really interesting question. No, but you know that Joe, John Bolton, yeah, he would have, if he was, um, if he was still in, in the administration, he probably would have. Well, but, well he, yes, he would have, but he was actually gone. He was gone by the time uh, of the election in 2020. Bolton resigned. Uh, he was out in 2019, I think. He lasted um, about a year. But yeah, certainly people like him, you know, those types, like Mike Pompeo especially, was still Secretary of State. Him and Trump were close. Trump went along with everything Pompeo wanted, the Venezuela coup, breaking the Iran nuclear deal, uh, pulling out of all these really important arms control treaties with Russia. Oh, yeah, and I forgot to say that. That's another strong piece of evidence um, against the notion that Trump would have avoided it because Trump broke, pulled out of really important arms control treaties with Russia and that gave Russia the increasing fear that the U.S. was basically determined to surround it with offensive weapons because Trump pulling out of the INF Treaty let um, the U.S. build up more weapons systems and, and missiles uh, inside of Europe. And in fact, r- right after Trump did it, the U.S. tested one of these weapons immediately 
as assigned to Russia. And Trump even refused to renew the New START treaty, the last treaty limiting the nuclear weapon stockpiles with the U.S. and Russia. And by the way, that's also a big reason why I was I said it'd be better if Biden gets in, because the Trump people were so crazy that they weren't willing to renew the New START treaty with Russia. And they were impo- unless Russia met all these conditions that Russia was never going to meet. And so Russia actually. I think interfered. It's funny, you know, all the talk about Russia interference in the election for Trump. I think Russia actually interfered in the election for Biden because Russia refused to give Trump a victory in late 2020 by uh, agreeing to Trump's terms on New Start and said, well, we'd rather wait to see who wins the election because we know that Joe Biden supports renewing New Start. So that to me was actually Russia saying we'd rather deal with Biden than with Trump, even though Trump is supposed to be our puppet, according to the democratic narrative. And when Biden won, the first thing he did in office was renew the New START treaty because it was about to expire because of Trump's recklessness. So look, as crazy as the Democrats are, as warmongering as they are, I cannot say for certain that Trump would have been any different had he be, had he been given the chance. You know, I just, there's very little evidence for it. Aside from, his, well, aside from his own personal statements about how much he likes Putin, all that stuff. But policy-wise, I don't see much evidence for it. No, but I, I want to know if, if Putin would have invaded Ukraine if Trump was in power because I think he feels more threatened with Trump than Biden. Does that make sense? I don't know. Well, if Trump is killing all these arms control treaties, if Trump won't uh, pledge to keep Ukraine out of NATO, if Trump is refusing to implement the Minsk Accords and you have the U.S. weapons going off to Ukraine to kill uh, Russian speakers in the Donbass, I doubt Putin would have acted any differently. Okay. Have a nice day. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Okay. And Stephen. Hey, Aaron, can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. J- just following that, our, our politicians seem to think that pullout is the uh, safe form of uh, nuclear contraception, right? That, that's right. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> Good joke. Um, anyway, I wasn't going to call in today, but here I am. Um, I wanted to dig into the nuance, uh, your, your respective Ryan Grimm and the Intercept at large. I guess I wanted to do that in a way that's extra careful not to frame it in a way that, you know, forces you to choose sides, threading the needle, so to speak. So I I guess let me start with my vantage point. Um, I see a guy like Ryan Grimm, and I feel like they're in kind of a in for a rude awakening. Either if they're pessimists, they're going to be continuously disappointed. Um, And if they're optimists, um, yeah, they're, they're either in for a rude awakening or continuous disappointment either way. And like, I find them kind of completely irrelevant to the conversation. So like I can have a respect for somebody like Ryan Graham and the work that he does. But the second I feel that he has something relevant to say, he'll rapidly discover that he has no platform to do so. So either he'll censor himself so that he's uninteresting or he'll retire in disgust. And I have no idea which way he's going to go. And then you kind of take a step back to the uh, Intercept roster as a whole. I can have huge respect for Jeremy Scahill, uh, even Mehdi Hassan in the narrow context of like Eric Prince, right? Um, but at the end of the day, they're really only allowed to say things that their donors, their owners, their country kind of align with. Um, so, like, what my what my analysis is missing in your view? Oh, well, look, I mean, um, yeah, I think we agree. I have respect for certain individuals and the work they've done. And I, I don't, you know, when someone has done impressive work, I, you know, they deserve to be honored for that. It's kind of like, look, I used to work for Amy Goodman at Democracy Now!, for 10 years. And I think Amy's a legend. And even though I think her show has taken a, a really terrible editorial turn on foreign policy uh, and on Russiagate, 
Um, incidentally, since I left, <laughs> um, I still always have respect for the work she's done. She's, you, she built an amazing, uh, outlet and has done, you know, you know, helped inspire the work I do and has done great stuff. And, but that, you know, that, that also doesn't mean I'm going to shy away from being critical now, um, of when I see, you know, in my opinion, an outlet like that and the intercept propping up the narratives that they used to challenge or at least that they're supposed to challenge. And yeah, the intercept to me is a, it's a, um, institutionally, it's completely corrupted. It's owned by one of the richest oligarchs in the world. Uh, he's been involved in U S regime change operations, uh, especially in Ukraine. I mean, I, I recently was on the receiving end of, of his, uh, his empire when, I don't know if you saw this, but the guardian put out this article calling me the leading spreader right. of disinformation on Syria. Yeah. And the source for that claim, which had no had no evidence, not even an example of my alleged disinformation, but the source for that claim was a study put out by a U.S., U.K., other state-funded think tank. But the study itself is all was received support from one of Pierre Omidyar's foundations. So basically, Pierre Omidyar founded funded that study, and that I think helps explain why the Intercept has been so terrible on Syria. For and sure. it's, it's so ironic because Jeremy wrote a book called Dirty Wars. Right. So on the biggest dirty war of this century, the intercept has been a supporter of it and their coverage is terrible. And that's why they won't even acknowledge the existence, as I was talking about earlier. This is my of, point. Of yes. the OPCW whistleblower. So institutionally, yeah, there. And look, they, it's a great set. But the problem, look, is look, if you've worked in media for a while and all of a sudden you get a job where you're paid like over half a million dollars to do nothing. You know, what are you going to do? Are you not going to take that job? Agreed. And, uh, you know, it's it's like, you know, uh, and yeah, it means you have to stay silent about some issues, but, you know, you still get to do other stuff you like and you get to do nothing. Like literally there are people there who literally do nothing. <laughs> right. And they're paid half a million dollars and even more. So, so, so it, if and, I may. And, and people and, and that allows them to feed their families. So it's like, you know. Understood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a traditional mortgage corruption, right? It's, yeah. Everyone's yeah. got a mortgage to pay, you know, therefore. Yeah. You know, as, as long as there's income coming in, you know, it justifies pretty much anything in those individuals' minds. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so that aside, though, like if they have something to say, but they're only allowed to say it when, you know, the stars align, then of what value is that? Oh, well, look, I mean, that's I mean, we can make our value judgments all we want. And certainly I do on Twitter constantly. I'm constantly making fun of The Intercept. And but, you know, look, uh, that's that's our judgment. And people still will choose, I think, at the end of the day, like they can take the being insulted on Twitter and made fun of if it means making a lot of money to do, to do nothing and, and put their kids through private school and all that stuff, you know? Um, but yeah, look, do I agree with your, do I agree with your value judgment of the intercept? Absolutely. It's uh, like on Russia gate, they were unbelievably terrible. And I, you know, like, like their editor in chief, Betsy Reed um, was yeah. openly hostile to voices like mine. She made, she took a shot at me in this issue of the New Yorker. There was an article about Glenn and she basically made fun of everybody except for every Russiagate skeptic except for Glenn. She said lack nuance and intelligence. Like Glenn, you know, she made an exception for it because that's her colleague. But everyone else, she said lack nuance and intelligence. And and she said that she believes that there was soft, loose collusion between Trump and Russia, like whatever that means. So these are people I don't I don't have any respect for anymore at all um, when it comes to journalism. But I understand the position they're in that like it's a really lucrative opportunity to pass up there's somebody there there's somebody there who makes twenty thousand dollars per column that's per insane. column per column so what do you you know so it's like 
what are you going to do in that situation? Um, many people will take that. But, but to understand is not to condone. I, I mean, and, and at some point, of course you, not. No. you are fully permitted to level judgments. Um, I, I mean, certainly, certainly people do that against you, right? Sure. Um, and you hear that all the time, I would presume. And, and so, like, I mean, withholding from the conversation uh, or not bringing your intellect to bear on some of those criticisms, I, I think th- there, there's a there's a trade-off there. I feel like of course, there is. of course there is. Of course there is. They've completely neutralized themselves. Um, uh, you know, I think Jeremy Scale has completely neutralized himself. Right. That's too bad because I think he's really talented. He's done great stuff. But you know, I, at the same time, everyone's got a, everyone's. Res- I'm not responsible for how anybody else looks at themselves in the mirror, except for myself. And so, there's a, yeah, sure, we can pass value judgments, but everyone's got their own situation. I don't, you know, like um, Chris Hayes, who I make fun of all the time. He came from a working class background. Right. So, yes, he gets paid now millions of dollars to spew lies every single night and, and just basically be a Democratic Party functionary. And uh, but I don't know his background. I don't know what brought him there. So, you know, we can I can be critical and I can make fun of him. But ultimately, the, you know, everyone's responsible for their own choices. And I also like, you know, it, it's like there's only so far that our judgments can go. I mean, we can make them all we want, but that's not the only thing that matters for, for okay. people. You know. Fair enough. Well, well, thanks yeah. for the response, Aaron. Appreciate sure. it. Thank you. Okay, Jeff. Hi there. Oh uh, shoot! I can hear you, Jeff. Uh, uh, wait, wait, wait. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I can. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I I want to talk about why stuff. Discussions don't go into more foundational issues like reigning in the CIA because it's pretty evident that that most of the bad stuff that goes on around the world, the CIA has their has their claws deep inside of it, you know, and there's really no talk about reigning in the CIA. And another thing is is it's a U.N., uh, an institution that can be saved. You know, nobody ever talks about that. And then getting into the, the January 6th thing, why no one talks about the, uh, the electoral college, because basically the January 6th thing is all about Trump trying to manipulate the electoral college to facilitate what happened in the previous election and in, in a more devious way. Um, I'm not sure I follow you here. So, so what's so? What do you want to see discussed? Oh, just uh, you know, I mean, especially the CIA being reined in. You know, I, I don't hear anybody talking about that. You know, and that seems like something that that absolutely has to happen. Don't you think? Oh, talking about we should be reining in the CIA. Absolutely, of course, of course, I I, de- I definitely think so. Um, it would be wonderful to have more oversight of the CIA, which is possible under the law. That's what Congress is supposed to do. But instead, look, I mean, with the Syria Dirty War, for example, which is a, you know, one of the most expensive covert wars in the CIA's history, we still don't know so many key details. Um, efforts to get information about what the CIA did, who it was supporting, have been stonewalled. And there was an article actually in Foreign Affairs uh, last year, I think. I quoted it in one of my articles by a former congressional investigator. And he tried to speak to the chairs of all these committees that have oversight over intelligence and try to get some information about you know what they knew about what the CIA was doing in Syria. And basically no one knew. 
No one asked questions. Um, when the when the Benghazi uh, incident happened, when U.S. diplomats were killed there, you know that led to these hearings, and, and uh, that led to the discovery by Congress that the CIA was using the diplomatic outpost in Benghazi to ship weapons off to Syria. And this is a big scandal, right? It's a huge scandal. And it may have actually you know, played a major role in the killing of these diplomats because the insurgents or, or the, the, uh, the groups, the militants that the U.S. was working with to ship off weapons to Syria had ties to al-Qaeda. And al-Qaeda, of course, was a major insurgent group in Syria. And it's possible that basically because um, some people in al-Qaeda or, or other militant groups heard it, like knew where the weapons were in Benghazi, that, that that actually helped them target the embassy to, to kill these diplomats because they wanted to take revenge on them possibly for Afghanistan or something. So, And when the Congress tried to try to, to dig into this, they were stonewalled. Uh, the CIA refused to really give up much. And um, the congressional record of those hearings, like I wrote about it recently in an article uh, for Real Clear Investigations about the Obama administration's uh, record in Syria. If you know, if you try to find even the transcripts of those hearings, they're really hard to find. So anyway, that's a long-winded way of saying that, yes, we need more oversight. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, well, more, more oversight, but more, you know, more, more attention, too, because, you know, all that stuff that you just brought up is all kind of news to me and and you know I, I'm nowhere near as as in tune with all this stuff as you are but but you know probably more in tune than 99% of the population but if nobody talks about the CIA and how devious it is I mean you know uh, I, I think that people think that that there's just certain sects in the CIA that get a little a little uh, over uh, overzealous. But, you know, basically the whole institution has been made to, to create chaos wherever they, they can. And they and they choose the weakest points. You know, it's not like they're it's not like they're going after China and Russia, you know, even though they, they even though they shouldn't be doing that either. But they but they choose all these 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 spots around the world. I mean, I'm sure they're they're deep into Sri Lanka right now, you know. Well, I have no idea. I have no idea what they're doing, if anything, in, in Sri Lanka. But it's it's certainly yeah. it's always it's always worth speculating and yeah. And, I mean, that's just speculation on my part. That yeah, that yeah. No. If things are blowing up there, the CIA is probably heavily involved. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, yeah. That, that, that's almost a no brainer. <laughs> All right, but, Jeff. You listen, know, thank you. Thank, thanks for the call. Okay. Thank you for the call. All right. All right, Tim. Hey, Aaron. Um, you can hear me, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, awesome. Um, so I start, I wanted, I was calling in for a different reason, but I kind of wanted to um, tell you just a, a little, it's not an anecdote, it's reported, it was in, in the news, but uh, that I think kind of frames Jeff and Daniel's point earlier. And it was a great quote from an FBI agent who just was, uh, you know, kind of incredulous about the naivete of a reporter. And it, they were talking about the CIA and the FBI. And, and the FBI agent kind of said, no, you, you don't understand. The FBI catches bank robbers. The CIA robs banks. Right? <laughs> and, you know, there's, 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 
you know, I found found Daniel's comments hard to follow because, you know, he's talking about a book that I haven't particularly read. But if you, you know, if you look at the involvement of uh, the U.S., the British, the Americans in the, in the, I mean, you know, it starts off with a firecracker, you know, Fourth of July celebration with, you know, the opium trade in China, and actually, you know, it's it. it it continues forever. So, you know, I, I think there's a there's a, a sheen of respectability that affixes itself to Western institutions, which really needs to be kind of mentally um, kind of d- repressed in order to see what's really going on here, which is an extraordinary level of um, criminality. You know, Aaron Good is very good at talking about this, about how how central criminality is to, um, you know, the the workings of the Western world. And, um, you know, I, I just, I think it's really worth highlighting because it's something that can help to kind of clarify what we're up against and, and how, um, you know, deranged our institutions are, you right. know. Yeah. Um, All right. But, I mean, the other thing I just wanted to raise with you is, you know that um, the, uh, the the Pompeo speech this week was off the charts insane, and what he said was literally what um, you know what geopolitical thinkers have been have been explaining to us for a long time about this, which is you know it's all about the Eurasian Colossus, right? So we're back to nineteenth century great game politics all wrapped up in an absurd, absurdly thin um, veil of, you know, marketing about democracy versus something called authoritarianism, which I don't even know what that means, you know? And, you know, he literally, he literally said it's a, it's, and, and the world is just bifurcated literally over the Ukraine war. I'm not sure that it's kind of, this is not a regional thing. This is not a small thing. This is an epoch-making thing. It's the most important thing that's happened, and I lived through the fall of the Berlin Wall. You know, mm. compared to that, it's minor, and yeah. I don't think the world's ever going to be the same. Well, I certainly agree with that. <laughs> I agree with that. And uh, look, I mean, who who could have predicted? Or at least I shouldn't say that. I could not have predicted that Russia would have, you know, four months into this war would be having a stronger ruble than it did before and be actually seemingly, I think, I mean, I, I haven't been to Russia. I don't know exactly what's going on, but it looks like they're weathering the sanctions and being cut off from the Western led economic order pretty well. And it's Europe, the rest of Europe that is facing, you know, a major crisis because of, you know, having, because they chosen to cut off Russia and now they're going to endure even worse energy crises and, it's going to get even worse come next winter. So I certainly, I mean, certainly some people did predict that I wasn't among them. What I did know is that this was going to be a disaster and uh, that, that's certainly proven to be true. And I agree. The world is, uh, it's not the same. Thanks Tim for the call. Yeah. All right. Brian. Uh, hi, Aaron. Uh, thanks for being here. Um, I, there are two things I wanted to tell you about. One, I think is a good follow-up to what you were just saying. Uh, I'm curious if you have any thoughts about the, Economic alliance BRICS uh, with Russia, China, Brazil, South America, and India, um, because I feel like that's a real big threat to the economic sort of world order. 
And that's a sort of an indicator of where things could be going, particularly with other countries looking to, to join that. Um, so, yeah, just your thoughts about that and how that sort of changes the world paradigm would be interesting. Well, I mean, look, it's not my wheelhouse, all this economic financial stuff. It, I don't really have much of insight to say, but I will say that just I've seen firsthand how ridiculous it is that the U.S. with a couple of keystrokes can cut off entire economies and deny people the right to carry out basic functions because of their control of the financial system. So, for example, right now, the U.S. can basically prevent reconstruction in Syria because they have these insane laws under what's called the Caesar Act, which will target any entity or country that does business with the government of Syria on anything. And as um, Dana Struhl, who is a top Biden official in the Pentagon, she bragged a few years ago. She said that we can hold a card on reconstruction in Syria and basically leave it in rubble. Uh, that's a pretty close uh, paraphrasing of her words. Uh, because of the U.S. control of the financial system, because of SWIFT, you know, the way payments are processed, with that, you know, the U.S. can, you know, deny people the right to rebuild their homes from a U.S.-backed dirty war. Or, you know, in Venezuela, uh, people ha- struggling to get basics they need, medicines, um, you know, when I was in Venezuela, I was with a translator, and she really wanted this app. Uh, I forgot what it was. It was some app in the app store on her iPhone or something, or whatever phone she had, and she couldn't download it because of the sanctions. You know, and Sir- and Syrians who can't take like uh, medical exams or LSATs because, or even use Zoom because Zoom is blocked by the U.S. sanctions in their country. It's all this, so all these ways to deprive people of the same sort of normal day to day. Uh, tasks that and interests that everyone else has if they're living under the U.S. umbrella. So anything that can be done to, you know, uh, get the world out from underneath the boot of the U.S. control of the financial system, I think is a wonderful thing. I mean, like, how can I not support that? And, and you know, it just—it's just sad. It it goes to show how little we actually care about any of these people that oh. we do that. And it's kind of pathetic that a hope for them might be that. China and Russia and, and their sort of alliance rising in economic power yeah. is sort of is is might be more beneficial to these people that are suffering than that because of what we do. I mean, it's just it's just absolutely absolutely. I mean, <laughs> absolutely absolutely yeah. I, it's I mean, China. Um, you know, I don't. I've never been to China, but I know that there there are aspects of living under the Chinese government that I personally would not favor. If I were to do it, but at the same time, for a lot of people living under their umbrella is a lot more advantageous to living under the U S umbrella because China isn't trying to sanction people or isn't supporting death squads in their country, you know? So that's just one of the weird paradoxes of this system we're in. If I could ask you one other thing real quick, um, and there's more in your wheelhouse and forgive me, it's a big topic, but you know, I think when it comes to Ukraine, uh, Obviously, diplomacy is is what we should be doing. We're nowhere near doing that. But um, when I do discuss that, you know, I like to bring up Minsk one and two and how, you know, uh, I feel like Russia did make some effort at diplomacy for eight years before attacking, obviously not justifying their attacks, but (laughs) but that there was an effort there and we could try to rebuild that. But I also occasionally get pushback. People claim that the Russians broke Minsk or that Ukraine broke Minsk and there seems to be a lot of he said, she said. So what is your take real quick on Minsk two, uh, one and two and why that failed? Well, Russia wasn't a party to Minsk. 
the Russian-backed rebels were. But Russia itself was not was not a party to it. And look, um, the key thing that had to happen for Mint to proceed, as far as I know, and there, there's a good book on this by Richard Sakwa called Frontline Ukraine. And he's a much better authority on this than than I. But he basically was that, uh, you know, under Mint, the Ukraine was supposed to withdraw some forces and there were supposed to be some elections in the Donbass republics. And Kiev basically didn't implement that. And uh, look, the person who actually explained it best recently was Poroshenko, who was the Ukrainian president who signed Minsk. And he said, um, and I talked about this, I think, last week on the show or maybe a few weeks before. He said that basically Minsk gave us eight years to prepare for war and to build up our economy and to be ready for war, which I took to mean that he was saying that we never had any intention of, of implementing Minsk. And look, I mean, even if he wanted to implement Minsk and even if Zelensky wanted to implement Minsk, there's the other problem, and I've written about this, which is that whenever someone like Zelensky took even a small gesture towards trying to implement it, there were massive far-right protests and far-right leaders, the same people who were behind the Maidan coup in 2014, were threatening to kill him, yeah. you know? And that's the part that doesn't get discussed. And look, you know, just broadly, isn't it funny? Like, what's so un- what's so diff- difficult is that, like, you know, the other side of the argument, at least, you know, when it comes to Ukraine for me, is that, like, they can say their argument in, like, five seconds and everybody will get it because everyone's bombarded with the same message that Russia illegally invaded this country that's on, that's not, you know, and that's illegal and they're imperial. And, you know, that's not to me a accurate message of what this whole thing is, but at least it's concise. So it doesn't take much effort for someone to get that. But for my side of things, and, you know, I presume like we're on the same side of this, like we need like at least five minutes to talk about (laughs) Minsk, NATO expansion, Arms, arms control treaties, all you know, all this stuff. It you, you need a long time, and that's kind of like part of the disadvantage that we're at, especially in a world where people have shorter attention spans. So, listen, I, I'm just saying, um, I, I feel your pain. It, it's yeah. tough, and, and and you're up against a huge propaganda system that has really bombarded people with the same message and denied people the basic facts they need to come to, to I think, to their own independent conclusion. Yeah, and that's the old joke: is you know, you have to spend eighty percent of your time just. Re-explaining everything to them. <laughs> exactly. Them yeah. 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 Tough. Aaron, yeah. I appreciate all the time you gave me. I know you got other people. So thank you very much. Thanks for the call. Okay. Joe. Hey there. Thank Hi. you for taking my call. Um, so I guess I wanted to do a thought experiment, but I, I guess I want to lay some things out. Um, the I, I'm speaking about the Russia-Ukraine um, war going on right now. Initially, or is this how it happened, that Ru- uh, Putin invaded Ukraine because he wanted to do a military ops uh, operation to denazify Ukraine. Is that correct? And you're saying that's the reason why, why Putin did it or that's the narrative of why he did it? Well, that's what he said he was doing. Well, right? yeah, that, that was one of his aims. Yes, he talked about uh, denazifying Ukraine. Yes, he did. Okay, so I guess like a thought experiment would be because this is why I'm kind of independent because of um, – I guess the right giving giving into this narrative um, that it's okay for someone to see something immoral in a different country and to invade in 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 that regard. So, for example, China or other countries see America as a Nazi place now with white supremacy. Um, I don't see how, and, and and we can even look at the numbers 
of of the Azov Battalion or whatever that are in Ukraine. There's about 600 Azov Battalions. And to justify invasion because of that, I think is is a little extreme. Um, okay. My thought experiment would be to to say, like, let's say, for example, that uh, America has uh, Chinese spies or assets from the Chinese government installed in our government at the highest level. And um, they are infiltrating our system and taking over our ways of life. They don't care about our constitution. And let's say that now that they are inside of our country, they're installing their own propaganda. Like they have their own news stations and now people are starting to agree with them and people are starting to hate America more. I see this is what happened with Ukraine. And people like Tucker Carlson, Candace Owens are saying it's bad for you to stop RT and to, and to shut down a democratic you know, thing where people can choose which side they want to be on while they're getting invaded by Russia. I just see this as completely nonsense for the right okay. to, to, to look okay. at it that way. OK, well, look, I don't th- I mean, I don't see much support on the right for the invasion and certainly no one I know says that the invasion is justified because there are Nazis in Ukraine. Uh, like a factual thing, I think there are more than 600 members of the Azov Battalion inside Ukraine. I don't know the exact number, but I would just suspect that it's more. But look, I agree with you that I don't think it justifies an invasion. But it wasn't the only um, – that's not the only reason for the invasion. I think the main reason for the invasion was you know, um, Ukraine was the site of a proxy war. For the last eight years, where 14,000 people were killed, according to the figures I've seen, as I understand them, most of the civilian deaths were happening on the side of the Russian speakers in the east. And the reason there was a war is because it it happened after a U.S.-backed coup, changed the government in 2014, and a new government basically declared war on Ukraine's Russian-speaking population who rose up in result. Now, some people would contest that narrative, say, I, but anyway, that's, but the point is, it's not, I don't think the, Russia's reason for the invasion was to rid it of Nazis, although the, I know that was one of their objectives. The reason was the U.S. and Ukraine were not respecting the Minsk II Accords, which was the agreement on record to end that war. And meanwhile, also, Ukraine was being integrated into NATO's military um, system with uh, you know training uh, with uh, you know U- U.S. military advisors there training thousands of Ukrainian forces and the U.S. and Ukraine signing agreements to further integrate Ukraine into the NATO-led military order. And meanwhile, you know there was this pledge back in 2008 under the Bush administration that Ukraine will once join NATO, and that was increasingly being deepened. And Biden signed even some new agreements with Ukraine to further that goal. That to me okay. is the reason. Is okay, so- and now, 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 now. Look, one could still argue, like, like what I've tried to argue is that, although I think I think Russia was provoked, I think Russia had uh, was in a very tough position. They were put in a corner. I still don't think that justifies the invasion because you know you're still responsible for how you respond, even if it's provoked and even if you know bad things are happening to you. Uh, but Russia's position too was that basically the. the 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 Russian speakers in the East were they had no hope of making peace with Ukraine, which I do think is I think that's a reasonable thing to say that Ukraine had no intention of ending that war. And the Russian speakers in the East, after they declared independence, they asked Russia to come in, and Russia said we're going to come to your defense. And so look, it's um, 
I'm not. I still don't think Russia. Or I haven't seen Russia m- provide a convincing case that it, it exo- exhausted all diplomatic options. I just. I can't believe that they had no choice but to invade. But I'll be. But as I've said, I'm. I'm open to that case, and I'm not going to just blanketly dismiss it. But um, I'll give. I, I'll give my yeah. final thought. Um, okay. Well, well, my my thing with with that whole argument is like you, you're suggesting that because there's Russian speakers in the east. Uh, Russia is spoken throughout Ukraine. Uh, it's like their second language. The only okay, but but I mean, people, in- people, people who identify with Russia and who were being attacked by the coup government that the U.S. helped install. Yes, I mean, m- many people speak Russian. I'm saying people who identify uh, as Russian, which is a you know considerable percentage of the population, and who saw their their president Yanukovych, who they voted for, get overthrown, and uh, they didn't want to become a NATO proxy. And that's why – and look, John Mearsheimer, his whole thing was the U.S. policy of trying to turn Ukraine into one camp and not recognizing that it's a very split country um, was crazy. That, that, that the U.S. policy was crazy because it was trying to turn Ukraine into something that would erase the preferences of a large segment of the population. So that's why the answer for Ukraine was always to respect both tendencies, the people who hate Russia – and want to be a part of the U.S.-led order, but also respect the people who don't feel the same way and want to want to have ties with Russia. So keep Ukraine neutral. That was what. That's right. what. That's why Mirshimer warned back in 2014, 2015 that Ukraine is going to get wrecked because they're being pushed into this. And by the way, William Burns, who's the current CIA director, he also warned about this too back when he was ambassador to Russia in 2008. He he made a similar warning. So that's the uh, point here. It's not just about. Nazis in Ukraine. Nazis in Ukraine is a feature of the Ukrainian uh, government, and, and it's an issue, but it's not, I think, the cause of this war. Right. So I'll just quickly end up. Uh, the whole thing, if people are actually like research this, the whole Nazi argument, G- Germany is, is basically where the Nazis were, right? So what we have today are nationalists, people like the Azov Battalion. They don't like foreigners coming into their land, stealing their businesses, taking up their land, and, and taking their livelihoods away. And, that's, and this is happening in their country. So you have nationalists that are fighting against this, which is the Azov Battalion. Um, and you can okay. research this. I think, okay, you yes. Said that I they think don't people agree with Hitler. They're not racist. They just don't want people stealing their land. But who was so their hero? Okay, yeah. About- but, but, but who was their hero? It's a guy named Bandera, who was a, uh, a, someone who massacred tens of thousands of Jews. So I'm sorry. I don't buy the well, argument. You, that you, might have, you might have a small fraction. Yeah, you might have a small fraction that agree with that. But then we could also say that about American politics and our leaders. They, they were slave owners. You could say the same thing. What uh, we do the, is we interview them and see what they I, what they, they wanted. They, they made Bandera a national hero. There are streets named after him. Right. Uh, but and there are plenty. There are plenty. There are plenty. Well, there, there are there are plenty of, of minorities. In what do Ukraine. they think of Hitler? What do they well, think look, of Hitler? Look, and I haven't I haven't surveyed. I haven't I, I haven't surveyed every single member of the Azov Battalion. I suspect you haven't either. I think it's fair to call them. As Nazis. pretty much, every, I think it's fair to call them Nazis. As everybody did up until Russia's invasion, every okay. U.S. media outlet did, and all of a sudden it became politically incorrect because now the Nazis were on our side. But I think it's absolutely fair to call them Nazis. But you disagree, and that's fine. We'll, we'll leave it there. Thanks for the call. Thank you. Okay, Daphne. And Daphne, if you're there, Hello? Hello? there you go. Hi. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry if my volume is bad. It's usually bad. 
Um, okay. First of all, um, I've been listening to Jennifer Briney's Congressional Dish chapters on Ukraine and Russia, and there's a bunch, and they're amazing, and they like explain it really well for, for everyone else, not for you. <laughs> um, and then my question for you um, is, uh, where do you see organizing happening that is worthwhile? Like what city, what parties? Um, also, if you have thoughts on the Green Party off the ballot in North Carolina. And, um, and I'll just add that like, It has been pretty difficult to me um, to get um, to get a lot of organizing going, or just to like participate in certain um, protests. Like I went to a protest in Logan Square in Chicago, and uh, there was a girl that was clearly like anti, I mean pro-abortion rights, uh, pro-choice, and uh, she came up and she was like, "Hey, are you guys gonna be really loud because?" I have uh, like a picnic happening <laughs> and I don't know, I feel like people should like be a little more disciplined and, and, and I don't understand how there's no like general strike at this point. So um, that's my question. Well, okay. So, okay. So there's a lot there. I, um, th you know, a big person I blame is Barack Obama from your city, Chicago, because I think he, totally neutralized uh, the progressive movement. There was a lot of energy and excitement when he won. You know, he sort of won off the back of anti-George W. Bush sentiment, anti-Iraq war sentiment, and he, he killed it. He came into office, and all of a sudden, he was like, you know, everything was going to change through him. Like, everyone, everyone could go home because he was Mr. Hope and Change, and of course, that was a complete scam. So I blame Obama. <laughs> um, I blame Russiagate for reasons I've talked about before. Russiagate, instead of, like, centering... Opposition to Trump around actual issues that could organize people. Russia Gate was about waiting for Robert Mueller to uncover the collusion smoking gun. Bernie, I blame Bernie Sanders. I hate to say because mm -hmm. Bernie had so much momentum after 2016 and such a big opportunity because not only was he like sabotaged, but the person who sabotaged him lost to a clown and lost because her record was so horrible. And so, a better opportunity for Bernie to take the reins of the party or try to. And I think he kind of retreated and ended up parroting the Russiagate scam that Hillary used to keep herself and her wing around. So, and there's many other factors, you know, I, um, it's hard for people. People have lives, families, people are struggling to just survive and it's difficult to put your time into organizing. And organizing is difficult. Like I've been in many leftist meetings where we spend, I don't know, two hours arguing about the, like, how we're going to organize the meeting. <laughs> you know, so it's just, you know, it's uh, difficult. And um, so, yeah, um, in, in terms of causes that are happening that are exciting, I think there's so many happening everywhere around uh, criminal justice. And um, I mean, look, it's whatever cause you're into, I think there's an option for you. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Um, I, I still I do feel like everyone that's outside of the Democratic Party, like the Green Party, the DSA, the PSL, the Socialist Alternative, I'm like, why aren't we all, <laughs> why is it hard? I just feel, so I, I came to the U.S. like eight years ago, and, and only now I'm like trying to break in. Um, I mean, I've, I'm into some movements, but just, I don't know, I, I feel like Uh, I feel like there's a there's like a paywall for everything. <laughs> I I agree. There is. There really is. It's weird. And um, yeah. 
I don't, you know, it's a strange society. I'm also, you know, a foreigner too. I came from Canada and, uh, you know, not that Canada is like so great, but, um, it's, there's something about, it's such a, you know, look, it's hard. Like there's no health, like part of the problem too, is like, because people are denied the basics they need to survive, there's just so much more of a premium put on survival on, you know, working and that, that, that like, because you're not provided for on the basics, like healthcare, it's, it, it puts people more and more into silos and, uh, it makes things more difficult, I think, for people to have the time to organize. And that's one of the, that's, it's, it's like, it's like, that's why the system works so well, because everyone is kept in a state of competition and precarity. And that leaves little time to organize around issues that could improve everyone's lives. But, you know, I just, you know, things will happen when they happen. And, um, <laughs> in places yeah. like, in places like Haiti, Haiti is twice elected a progressive president who comes from the poor majority, Jean-Bertrand Aristide. And of course, that's why he was overthrown twice in U.S. back coups. But I'm just saying it's, if Haiti can do it, then so can it. I agree. I, I, I'm going to log off right now. But I mean, I, I just wanted to add, like, if anyone, to anyone here, like, um, you know, if, if you have a leftist friend that wants to do something and you can like organize instead of like, just talk about leftist celebrities, it's, Always super appreciate it. All right, that's it. Thanks. Here, 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 here. Okay, thanks for the call. And Rob, if you're there, there's the microphone button in the bottom right. You press to unmute yourself. There you go. There we go. Uh, I'd like to discuss your topic. Do not engage, and discuss it from a predictive sort of way, not a normative sort of way. What do you think it would take to get Antony Blinken as representative of the establishment to engage with Russia? What would have to happen on the battlefield and what would happen happen in the balance sheet war? What I call the balance sheet war. Places like Sri Lanka or Germany getting really impacted by energy and food. Well, the only thing I can think of is domestic unrest here because the Biden administration has made clear that they don't care about suffering elsewhere. I think it's pretty clear from their actions. They don't care about Ukrainians being killed. That's kind of the basis of their whole policy is using Ukrainians as cannon fodder or fighting Russia to the last Ukrainian, as uh, Ambassador Chaz Freeman says. And when it comes to the rest of the world, you know, there was a line I love to quote because it's so sociopathic from the Washington Post, where they say that they're willing that based on, you know, what Biden officials tell the Washington Post, that the administration is willing to countenance global recession and mounting hunger, countenance global recession and mounting hunger. So they know these are the consequences of their actions in Ukraine, but they don't care. They're willing to countenance it because they really, really want to deny Russia a victory. They really don't want Putin to hold on to Crimea. Um, that's their overriding thing. So I think the only thing that could reverse that is domestic unrest. If uh, enough people in the U.S. mobilized around the issue and told them to knock it off. And that's why we have such a great propaganda system to prevent people from doing that. And um, that's why we have Democrats lo- voting in unison to keep it going because you know they're they're on board with the administration. So there's... So where is it going to come from? You know, I don't know. I mean, do you see any other factor that could deter the Biden administration well, or, if, or, or change its course? If German industry begins to shut down because of 
running out of natural gas, and there are some technical factors in the United States, and cutoffs in some progressive cutoff uh, by Putin, by the Russians, that could cause the supply chain from hell. Hmm. Particularly if BASF Ludwigshafen, a 10-kilometer square chemical plant, shuts down. They're already rationing hot water in apartments. Yes, yes, yep, they are. Uh, I've I've heard about this from German friends and the head of Germ like or like a top official with Germany's largest uh, union organization said that entire industries could collapse if this keeps going. And so how's it you know if it's bad now how will it look next winter when it's really cold in Germany? I've been there in the winter time. It's freezing. It's a nightmare scenario. So and you're saying that that so you, so you, so you think that a disruption in Germany of that scale could could sway the people in Washington? No. Mm. <laughs> I'm asking you if they could. <laughs> well, again, I... I, uh, I cheated yeah. there. Yeah. No, well, look, given they were so willing and so determined to sabotage the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which they knew would have adverse consequences on Germany, I just don't think they care. You know? Um, they will once the supply chain effects hits, but that's next year. Right. Yeah. Hmm. I would buy specialty electronics if German industries start shutting down. Hmm. Hmm. We're not talking about just Chinese ships being late. We're talking about shortages of critical chemical in- inputs yep. to a huge variety of products. Yep. Yep. But as I understand... Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. I mean, I think... I just... Anthony Blinken is a smugger version of the sociopath Pompeo. And there's no Robert Rubin or Steve Munchen in there to... You can disagree with their neoliberal policies, but they're not stupid and they can read reports. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I, I call uh, Blinken the Pompeo from Paris. It's the exact same thing. <laughs> he just he just grew up in Paris, went to nice boarding schools, and knows how to dress and speak like a liberal. But yeah, he's he's the Pompeo from Paris, and uh, it's unbelievable. I I knew they would be bad, but I did not think that they would be this bad. Rob, great to hear from you. Thank you for the call. Okay. Bye. All right, and we're gonna wrap very soon. So I might not get to everybody. So let's get to as many as we can. Laviana, Lavinia. Sorry, I can't pronounce your name, but go ahead. You're you're up and just to unmute yourself, press the microphone in the bottom right. Does it work? Hi. Yeah. Can you hear me? Hello. Yes. Hi. Uh, hi. So I have three three points to make. So number one, good morning. Here it's four twenty in the morning, by the way, so I might sound a bit weird, but okay. So <laughs> Uh, number one, uh, I would like to ask, uh, because you were talking at the beginning uh, about the progressives and what are they going to do, uh, how they're going to vote, yada, yada, yada. But do you actually think that they are actually going to do anything, considering the fact that uh, Ukraine is basically a transit point, uh, seems to be a transit point for bribes, uh, no? 
because we know we know about Burisma, we know about Slochevsky, we know about Pinchuk. Pinchuk is funding the Atlantic Council. Mm-hmm. Uh, is also this is uh, also founding this Energy Security Forum, which is basically a secret forum which is uh, held uh, in Monaco, uh, where they do decide European energy policy. Uh, and besides that, we just got the news. I don't know if you hear, if you heard about that, that uh, uh, the biolabs in Ukraine, those biolabs which didn't exist, uh, actually not only do exist, but they were working. Uh, it was the, the U.S. government uh, in Ukraine was working with this Metabiota company, which was actually uh, funded by Rosmond Seneca, uh, which is the investment group uh, of Hunter Biden, which like Hunter Biden was working with with the with the hair of the Heinz family. So like it seems to me that the ties, that the oligarchic ties in Ukraine are so extensive that that it is literally impossible that politically anything would happen because they are gonna cover for each other. No? We call this kind of behavior omerta. Like the, the, the <laughs> the yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah, look, uh, it very much is like a ma- like a mafia racket in Ukraine, and you know, before the Russia invasion, it was you could easily read in the U.S. media that or the Western media that Ukraine's the most corrupt country in the world, and uh, I, you know, Zelensky and his circle, I think, will do fine. They'll be handsomely rewarded for letting their country get destroyed in the service of a proxy war. Um, but uh, yeah, look, I, I don't know. I mean, the, yeah, but it's also possible there are people inside the Ukrainian you know, establishment who, you know, like maybe in the military who won't tolerate seeing their country get destroyed forever and being turned into a U.S. proxy. I mean, I've heard talk about, you know, like Zelensky facing a threat, not just from the far right, but also from people who think he's being suicidal with, with his policies. So so who knows? Uh, but uh Yeah. In terms of Ukraine and its long-term future, it's very bleak. Because, by the way, also, Russia is taking territory that is very valuable. The The Donbass region was the, was Ukraine's industrial base. Yes, and but in reference to that, uh, perhaps we should also mention that, uh, uh, that the oligarchs themselves are very interested in getting the Donbass. Because, uh, um, as a matter of fact, for example, they passed, I think, last year, a law which like allows to like sell the land, the agricultural land. And like, uh, like, uh, and given that the natural resources are there, and that actually, for example, all of these energy companies, like I checked uh, Burisma's like uh, energy um, reserves, and it doesn't actually seem that they have proven reserves. This you can find from like the uh, SEC Commission, the Security and Exchange Commission. So okay. it's just like, uh, it's just like, um, like I don't, I don't know, like I don't think anything can be moved politically as far as I see it for now. And and like in this sense, like like expecting the progressives to do something, it's simply not in their hands because there are like way bigger interests. And this has been going on since like the early 2000s has been going on. It's like it's yes. a bunch of shell companies, mm. like changing names and re-registering. Right. right. Well, listen, um, thank you for the call. And thanks for being with us so early. I uh, I appreciate it. Okay. Okay. Uh, Mark. You're up, and then we're going to have to wrap after that. Okay, Mark, go ahead. Can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, yeah, just uh, I was uh, wanting to speak to um, one, of, one of the guys 
earlier who, who was talking about, um, you know, the, the Ukrainian nationalists, but a, a lot of these nationalists are, are actually from the, the northwest of Ukraine and, um, like they never even used to call themselves U- Ukrainians. Uh, you know, once upon a time they they used to call themselves, you know, Ruthenians. I mean, mm. I mean that's quite a while ago now. But um, it's almost like, and and that's that's the heartland of this this nationalism. And it's like that they, they're calling themselves you know Ukrainians now, so that they can. Um, Put this claim over the the, the entirety of, of Ukraine, rather than you know the, their particular you know why don't they just split themselves off into right. uh, you know and, and not demand everybody else change and um, like why do they want to you know use in cu- cultural imperialism over these other people I, I just don't understand it. And, yeah, and it's it's. And it's insane. It, it's it's led to disaster, and it's it's uh, it makes no sense. If a country is deeply divided, it creates serious problems. But the best answer in that situation is just respect everyone's differences and don't try to push it in one direction or the other. But that pushing it into the one direction has been the basis for you know the U.S. policy for many years now. Yeah, yeah, and um, I mean, you know, I've said this before, but uh, but. Ukrainians voted for peace, you know, twice. Um, yeah. Once for Poroshenko and once for Zelensky. And they both said that they would make peace with Russia and, and they would de-escalate. And they're both ethnic Russian speakers and they're both from from the east of, of Ukraine. So, yeah. I mean, that's what U- Ukrainians voted for. Yes, um, but and- uh, but unfortunately, more powerful than Ukrainian voters are the far right in Ukraine and neocons in Washington, who basically teamed up to make sure that peace could not happen. I mean, I yeah, and I've written about this, but yeah, that's they ultimately vetoed the Minsk Accords and and basically uh, vetoed Zelensky's main campaign agenda, making peace, and that's that's why we're here. Yeah, and, and I also wanted to speak to, you know, a lot of people feel helpless. Um, and, like, um, I, I, I believe, um, it sh- you know, we should be able to act in, in, independently, you know, improving our own lives um, and not, you know, we, we shouldn't rely too much on, you know, we're, we're all waiting for a, a charismatic leader, or, you know, organizations to, to organize us. What we can do, uh, by, by ourselves is, you know, improve our own lives and, and also sack the oligarchs at the same time. You know, if, if we, if we can, you know, deny them $5, $10, you know, gradually unpick ourselves from the briar bush. Um, we, we have to do that independently. And then hopefully as, as people get better at it, you know, maybe they can go, Put their hands up and go. We're here, <laughs> um, and we can follow them. I, I mean, I, I've been a, um, a member of the open source movement, and, and that's how you know we've organised ourselves uh, in the, in that way. Uh, wh- whoever manages to achieve the most, they put up their hands, and, and people follow what they're doing. And um, you, you know, we we can't wait 
we, we need to act today. And, um, yeah, I, I think that's very important. Well, hey, here, here. And thank you, Mark. Thanks for those words. And that will be it. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. It's so cool to see everybody here, to hear people from around the world, and for us all to, you know, try to grapple with this awful situation we're in now. And I really appreciate everybody for tuning in, for sharing your comments. And, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed doing it. So thank you for joining me. I'll be back uh, on here tomorrow. That's Monday morning uh, after we do the Monday morning show with Katie Halper on YouTube. That's We'll be here at 11 o'clock a.m. Eastern Time. And have a great rest of your night. Bye, everybody.